Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. Last week, we talked a little bit about our church's um, vision, you know, to have deep roots and to bear fruit. We want to be like a a healthy, fruit-bearing tree. We want to be rooted in God's Word. We want to be rooted in uh, who God is and God's sovereignty so that we, you know, aren't uh, taken out of the game by every drought and every storm. You know, we want to be rooted. And uh, here at CBC, we strive to see the lives uh, of individuals rooted in these things, rooted in God's Word, rooted in, in, in Christ, um, so that they can be spiritually healthy, uh, bearing fruit, all of that. So, uh, but there's another element, uh, another aspect of uh, being rooted that's important to our growth, and that is that we need to be rooted together. We need to grow together. The image that comes to my mind is like the trees out here south of town, right? Uh, the, the pine trees, they grow together as a, as a forest. And uh, that's another picture here that I want to sh- demonstrate for us today. Just the community of believers being rooted together, growing together in Christ, centered around God's Word. Um, we live uh, in a very uh, individualistic society. And uh, I, I love, you know, being independent. I love all that. But we take it to, uh, we take that concept to a fault, to an extreme where it's actually not healthy, you know, where we, you know, right? We love out west here, I'm telling you, us farmers, ranchers, cowboys, right? Whatever. We love to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, don't we? Um, feel kind of ashamed if I got to call the neighbor and ask for help, you know, because I, I need help. Um, so, uh, that actually uh, is, is, that's a fault, I think, that, that we have in ourselves. It's, there's a pride element there. Because we weren't made to do life alone. Uh, we just weren't. We were made to live in community. We were made to be in relationships with God and with each other. And uh, being rooted in a community that's centered around Jesus and the Word of God is going to help us grow spiritually and become better followers of Jesus. So that's sort of what we're going to talk about this morning as we uh, come to our study on the life of Moses. Um, At this point, just for some context at this point, uh, Moses has already led Israel out of Egypt and they are right now in the process of journeying to Mount Sinai, and as they, right, so they've crossed through the Red Sea, and they're on this journey to Mount Sinai, and as they journey to Mount Sinai, God gives them a series of tests, like six or seven tests, to develop them as a people of faith, okay, to increase their faith, shape them into a people of faith, so that they're going to be a light to the nations around them, and uh, previously, um, last week, we saw them deal with an enemy within, uh, within their own hearts, the, the enemy of, of, of sin and unbelief, right? The grumbling that went on in their hearts. There was a lack of trust in God. 
And then uh, this week, we're going to start out with uh, them fighting uh, another enemy, but from the outside now. It's actually a war with the uh, people group called the Amalekites. So Israel wars against Amalek here in uh, verses 8 through 16 of chapter 17. That's where we're going to pick it up. So Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So uh, Moses said to Joshua... Choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will take my stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And Joshua did, as Moses told him, uh, to fight against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it happened when Moses raised his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. And then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. And thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And then Yahweh, uh, the Lord, in some of your Bibles, uh, said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it in Joshua's hearing, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under, this, from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it Yahweh is my banner. And he said, because he has sworn with a hand upon the throne of Yah, Yahweh will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. So uh, kind of a unique, unique little account here in the Bible, a standout in my opinion, but on their way to Mount Sinai, Israel runs into the, these, this people group called the Amalekites who live in this region also. We're, we're looking just south of the territory of Israel as we know it, in the Negev, uh, in the Arabah, the northwest section of uh, Saudi Arabia, over in this area uh, by the Gulf of Aqaba. But um, here the Amalekites come because they seem to be a nomadic people in this area as well, and they want to probably protect their resources uh, they don't want uh, thousands or millions of Israelites coming through their area, right? Uh, the, the resources out there are precious. And so, um, like cowards, Deuteronomy 25 tells us that they would actually go from behind Israel while they're, while they're uh, traveling, and they would attack the weak, the sick, and the elderly, right? Uh, and so, uh, God's judgment falls on them uh, through, through the war here. Moses appoints Joshua, uh, his future successor, by the way, uh, to lead Israel into battle while he uh, stands on top of a hilltop from a distance, right, so he can oversee the battle. And he takes with him the staff of God, and he raises up the staff of God in his hands. And uh, uh, through the Exodus plagues that we've gone through, uh, th- this staff we know, has become a sign of God's presence and God's power. And lifting up this staff, lifting up his hands, uh, is a sign of his prayerful dependence upon God. That's lifting up your hands, like empty hands, in, in the Psalms and in some instruction of First Timothy, is, is a sign of, uh, of, of depending upon God in prayer. Okay, uh, he was engaging. Moses was engaging. Everyone agrees. He was engaging in intercessory prayer above on the hilltop, while Joshua actively engaged the enemy on the ground below, in the field below. 
And the text says that as long as his hands were lifted up, he would overwhelm the Amalekites. But uh, when his hands grew heavy and they started to drop, uh, the Amalekites started to prevail. And so Aaron and, his, and this other man named Hur, um, historian Josephus, uh, claims that he was the husband of Moses' sister, Miriam, so brother-in-law. Uh, but Mo- Aaron and Hur, they grab him a seat, they get him a rock to sit on, and uh, they help support his hands, one on both sides, until the sun sets. And uh, they win the battle together that way. Uh, really, just a beautiful picture, isn't it? Uh, I-, I love this account. Uh, the point is being made here that, that Moses cannot win this battle on his own. Even the mighty Moses, right? Great Moses, right? The leader of Israel, deliverer of Israel, cannot uh, win this battle on his own. He needed help from others who, together with him, would mutually depend upon God's power. This, this, whole, this whole battle is fought in an active way, right? With boots on the ground, but it's prayer that's actually supporting the boots on the ground. And that's the reason the boots on the ground have victory. Isn't this awesome? Without prayer, their activity on the ground is ineffective. It's a pretty powerful uh, lesson here, but uh, we'll come back later. But last week we saw, this is neat really, because last week we saw, what did we see? We saw people quarreling with each other, right? They were ready to kill Moses, right? (laughs) They're going to strangle him, Uh, they were quarreling with each other because they didn't trust God to provide. Lack of trust in God can cause quarreling among God's people. But here this week, we see the people united and depending upon God together. And again, just a beautiful picture of a faith community. And God says, write this down, right? Record this for the next generation and memorialize it. And uh, that's what they do. Uh, Moses writes it down, and uh, he builds an altar there. He names the altar Yahweh Nissi, the Lord is my banner. Basically, uh, what this means is Yahweh's name, right? Every, every army had flags, and Yahweh's name was on their banner, on their flag. When they went to war, they fought not in their own strength or their own power. They fought in the name of their God. It was in his name, it was in his strength, it was in his power that they had victory. And that's why God gets the glory, Amen. Same in our lives. But we're going to fast forward just a smidgen now to Exodus 18, 13. Uh, fast forward 12 verses. I'll tell you what happened in those 12 verses, so don't worry. Uh, Moses and, and uh, the Israelites, they arrive at or near Mount Sinai. Okay, this, so that's where they're at now, at or near Mount Sinai at the base of the mountain. Moses uh, is reunited with his family. Remember, he's got a wife and two kids, uh, Zipporah, and, uh, and his firstborn is named Gershom, and uh, I just forgot the other guy's name, the other poor boy, sorry. But uh, he's reunited with his family, they share a meal together, and they celebrate the Lord's uh, deliverance. Uh, apparently after that incident on the way back to Egypt, remember with Zipporah and the circumcision on all of that, uh, his family went back to Midian and with, with Jethro, his father-in-law. And so Moses now comes back in that area, and Jethro and his family meet up again. But... Uh, uh, we see Jethro come into play again here. Uh, Jethro counsels Moses in verses uh, 13 through the following. Verse 13, it happened the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood about Moses from morning until evening. And Moses' father-in-law 
saw all that he was doing for the people, so he said, what's this thing that you're doing for the people? And he said, why do you alone sit as judge and all the people stand about you from morning until evening? That's a, that's a lot of standing. That's all day long, right? And um, Jethro, so he, him, he comes into this, uh, this uh, picture now with fresh eyes. Uh, he's the high priest of Midian, so he has some experience, uh, experiential wisdom as a leader himself, and he realizes uh, Moses is doing all the work, and uh, it's not healthy. Uh, he's doing all the work and leading the people. He's the sole leader. He's the sole judge of this, this mighty nation that's before him, and he can probably see weariness in Moses' face. And not only in Moses' face, but in the face of all the people who are standing there out in the desert sun all day, right, uh, waiting to get to Moses, uh, if, if that's the way it looked. But they're just waiting in line all day to meet with Moses. And Jethro asks, why are you doing this, and why are you doing it all alone? Uh, relevant question. Verse 15, Moses responds, Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. And when they have a matter, uh, a matter, it comes to me, and I judge between a man and his neighbor, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So, uh, this is funny. Remember when Moses struck that Egyptian all the way back in Egypt, right? When he tried to deliver Israel the first time, and it wasn't God's timing. And the Egyptian, or uh, sorry, one of the fellow Israelites said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Well, it's kind of ironic now, because here is Moses <laughs> sitting as ruler and judge over the people of Israel. So it's very ironic, somewhat comical now. But uh, it does give us, I think, a good Palm Sunday picture, right? Where we celebrate Jesus as our king, right? Uh, Moses is just a foreshadowing of uh, the ultimate deliverer who would come, and that's Jesus Christ, right? Jesus is our prophet. Moses was a prophet. Jesus is our priest. Moses was a priest. He's our king, right? So he's, he's our judge, too. He's going to judge the nations. And so I, I just find that a relevant uh, Palm Sunday uh, parallel. But look at Moses' response to Jethro's question. He doesn't, appear, he doesn't appear to be defensive at all here. He's just being honest. Uh, people come to inquire, uh, come to me to inquire of God, um, People look to him, you know, they look to him as, as, God's, as God's man. Um, he's the head of the complaints department, it appears. But, uh, you know, when Moses says this, I don't know if he's expecting um, a positive response from Jethro, like, wow, you're doing such a great job, keep up the hard work. If that's what Moses was expecting, it's not what he hears. Uh, look at verse 17 here. He says, Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you are not... Sorry, the thing that you are doing is not good. Uh, you will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you for the task is too heavy for you. You can't do it alone. So at this point, I'm wondering if uh, this whole battle with the Amalekites, he's having flashbacks, how he couldn't win that battle alone. He's not going to do it alone here either. So Jethro says, now listen to my voice. I'll give you counsel and God be with you. You be the people's representative before God, and you bring the matters to God, and then warn them about the statutes and the laws, and make known to them the way in which they shall go, and the work they shall do. So Jethro basically says, Moses, you're doing so much that you're not doing anything well. You know, you're doing too much. 
and it's not only harmful to you, it's harmful to the people you lead as well. See, Moses, one guy said, was trying to be the judge, he was trying to be the jury, he was trying to be the police, the counselor, the pastor, whatever, right? He's trying to be everything. And it wasn't healthy for anyone. And, and Jethro wasn't saying that you shouldn't work hard, that he shouldn't work hard, but that he should focus on what's essential, you know, and then share the load of what's additional. Right? He has to understand what's essential to his calling and then what's additional and what he can delegate to someone else, right? Someone else can help share the load. So rather than overseeing, can you imagine this? Overseeing every little discrepancy that this community of people has, um, he would, Jethro's saying, look, your time would be better spent in prayer, number one, taking the people to God, taking issues to God, and then in teaching, taking the word of God to the people, more on, of a, more on a congregational level instead of individually like this. Um, if he prayerfully taught God's word to the people, you have to think, and this is my hope from the pulpit every time I get up here, is that you know, we're, we're counseling right now. I don't have to counsel everybody individually all the time because we're counseled through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Uh, so if you do that well, there shouldn't be as many disputes and complaints in the first place, right? Amen and amen. <laughs> but uh, we should note that Moses, what Moses was doing was normal. Okay, this was the normal thing to do in the world of ancient monarchies. A king's leadership was often direct, and it was, it was personal. Uh, in his commentary on Exodus, Dwayne Garrett wrote that, uh, uh, this is my favorite commentary on Exodus, by the way, uh, but he said, judicial, priestly, and diplomatic tasks fell directly to the king. That was normal. That was what... Moses grew up with in Egypt with the pharaohs, uh, the king pharaoh. You know, that's, they directed activities personally. And so it's not surprising then that Moses felt compelled to manage every minute affair personally. It was normal. But Jethro is wise enough to recognize that this level of personal involvement was unsustainable and it's unhealthy. He's going to burn out, as we say. And so um, Jethro's advice uh, breaks the norm. I think we can call it countercultural. Look at this, verse 21. But you shall select excellent men out of all the people, those who fear God, men of truth, those who hate greedy gain. And you shall place these men over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And then they will judge the people at all times. And it will be that every major matter they will bring to you, but every minor matter they themselves will judge. So it'll be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. And if you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you'll be able to endure, and all these people also will go to their places in peace. So good leadership principles here, right? This thing's loaded with good leadership talk. But... Um, I like how he adds at the end there, if God so commands you. you know, it's like he's saying, um, here's my two cents, take it or leave it, God's will be done. You know, and uh, his two cents are that, are that Moses delegates some of his responsibility to others. That is going to do two things. It's going to make it easier on Moses. 
uh, he won't burn out and so, much, so much or so fast. And then secondly, it's just going to be better for the people. So better for him, better for the people. And I find this to be rare advice. Uh, I don't know about you, but in the, in the business world and, and in some churches that, that sometimes unfortunately act like businesses uh, or operate like businesses, you know, people want to get the most of their, out of their money. And so they think, well, if the leader isn't working hard, if he's not engaged, you know, 10, 16 hours a day or whatever it is, well, then he's not doing his job well. But on the contrary, wisdom understands that a good leader is going to delegate properly. So he's not always so stressed out and so burned out, right? Um, delegation makes the organization, if, if it's, a, it's a church or if it's a business, uh, it makes the business more or the ministry more efficient, more effective. It's just, it's healthier in every respect. Uh, the leader uh, does a better job when they're not exhausted all the time. You know, so as the, as the workload increases, the wise leader or manager doesn't always just get busier. You know, he, he gets smarter. You know, he starts to delegate. And so, um, you know, please, please don't misunderstand this. I'm not trying to get out of my, my duties here, right? Some of you guys are thinking, this guy just wants to slack off, right? But, uh, you know, every, every calling has its seasons, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what job you're in. Usually it has a season, right, where it's just tougher than normal, right? Like when uh, calving season hits and then two feet of snow comes. But, um, or harvest season. But, you know, most jobs, even ministry, has seasons that require longer hours than normal. Uh, but it shouldn't always be that way. You know, you shouldn't always live at that high, that high pace. As a farmer, I remember working double time during harvest. I remember my wife being a harvest widow, as we called them. Because you know, it's just like you get home really late, sleep six hours, and you're up before the chickens, and man, you're dragging yourself out of bed. But um, there's no way anyone could or should operate that at that harvest pace year-round. You know, it's just not right. It's untenable. And that's, what, that's what's going on in Moses' life here. Um, Sometimes I think we get the idea, even in Christian ministry in particular, that it's, like, it's a sign of spirituality for someone to work 10 to 16 hour days and, and to walk around with a pickaxe over our shoulder, you know, like we just got out of the salt mine. You know, just walk around as a martyr or something, like I'm serving the Lord. You know, and that's, that's what we say. But to be honest, the people who minister to me the most, um, they, don't, they don't walk around like that. Uh, the people who minister to me, I don't know about you, but these are, these are people who have balanced lives. You know, they, they, they work hard, yes, but they also know when to rest. And they rest well, right? They enjoy life. They take time to refresh, that sort of thing. Uh, they, I, right, right, this isn't, this isn't a sprint. This is a marathon. It's a long haul. It's slow and steady wins the race, right? Turtle over the hair type of thing. And uh, right now, Moses is acting like the hair, and um, he's, he's neglecting his family. You know he is. Moses, the mighty minister of God, is so busy serving God, he's neglecting his family. Uh, it's a uh, pretty, pretty sad picture, to be honest with you. Um, 
leaders who, who, who have a balanced life, right? They, they share the load with others. They're going to do a better job. Everything's just going to be better. They have more time. You, you have to imagine at this point in Moses' ministry, he's treating people like a number. He's not really getting to know people. He's not sitting down with them. He doesn't have time to call them, see how they're doing, because he's so busy. People are a number. Next, right? Next, next, see you later. That's not the way it should be, right? And especially for someone who's supposed to be leading by example, you know, he, he, uh, the people aren't getting any healthier themselves. So here's a funny thing. Describing Moses' death uh, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, it says that Moses dies and his eyes aren't dim, his eyes haven't grown dim, and, he has, and his vigor, his energy is not abated. Right? He hadn't lost it yet. You know? <laughs> so, um, I can't help but think that because he heeded Jethro's advice, that that's the way he passed away. If he hadn't heeded Jethro's advice, he would have, I don't know, just saying. He probably died with, you know, more hair and less wrinkles, too, because he heeded Jethro's advice. But uh, I can't imagine that that would have been the description of the end of his life had he not learned to delegate. Okay, let's look at verse 24. Uh, Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. And Moses chose excellent men out of Israel and made them heads over the people, leaders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And they judged the people at all times. The difficult matters they would bring to Moses. Every minor matter they brought to them, they themselves would judge. And then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way into his own land. And so you have to love Moses is humble enough to listen to his father-in-law. He appoints men of integrity to be elders over the people, over these, uh, what I like to call these ever-increasing small groups. And uh, Moses, he, he becomes a great example for leaders everywhere. And I've just got two key principles from these two episodes in Moses' life that are going to, I think, make for a healthy faith community among God's people. And the first one is, first big principle uh, applying this is uh, that a healthy community lives by faith in God's power. A healthy community lives by faith in God's power. The community does not look to one single man like Moses. It looks to God, right? Yahweh, the great I am, the self-existent one, self-sufficient one. Um, Moses keeps trying to direct the people's eyes to the Lord who can do something about their situations. And um, like Moses and the Israelites battling Amalek, we're to rely, guys, as a church on God's power together. Right? Together when we depend upon God. And, and we have to, don't we? I mean, for everything in the Christian life, you have to depend upon God. For salvation, for sanctification, right? For being saved from your sins, from the penalty of your sins, you rely on Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross. And if you want to become more like Jesus Christ, you have to depend upon his power too, right? You need the divine nature, the Holy Spirit on the inside to give you power over the things that you're struggling with. Uh, that's just the way it is. We have enemies within. We have enemies without. We've got the world, the flesh, and the devil all against us. And we're, these opposing forces require us to depend upon God's power for victory. Okay? We're in a real 
spiritual battle. Paul said, we don't war against flesh and blood. Ultimately, we war against the spiritual forces of, of wickedness, right? Uh, evil forces. And uh, sometimes we, that means that we're going to get actively involved. We're going to be Joshua. We're going to be boots on the ground. But even when we do get involved, even when we do fight back on a very uh, physical uh, time and space, right, matter, right, uh, some of the evil things going on in our world, even when we fight back against that in that sort of way, when we get involved, right, it must be supported through, through prayer, and that's why we pray for our country, right? We pray for our leaders. Um, this is why we need each other. We're in a real spiritual war. And uh, this is why I think small groups are so critical. Small groups, Bible studies, that sort of thing, right? We're going to get into smaller groups. We're going to grow together. We're going to pray for each other. We're going to hold each other accountable. We're going to challenge one another in our walks with Christ. We just, you know, iron sharpens iron type of thing there. And uh, when we do that, when we, we get involved in these small groups, we battle together, we become better followers of Jesus because of it, right? So many uh, Christians... Uh, stunt their growth, they stunt their walk with Jesus because they never get beyond Sunday acquaintances with a church somewhere. They never get involved. They never really get plugged in. And so they never, that, it's, just, it's just something's just not there. And uh, so let's grow together. Um, secondly, a healthy community of, uh, of uh, or a healthy community is going to embrace an every member ministry. Uh, we're going to embrace an every-member ministry. Moses was a mighty man of God, right? He's a man of importance. I'm sure everybody wanted him as their, as their speaker at the next conference. And uh, you have to love how humble and willing he is, though, to heed Jethro's advice and share the responsibility of his ministry. Actually, Numbers 12, verse 3 says that uh, there's no one who was meeker than Moses, no one more humble than Moses. Right? Meekness. I like the term meekness. It, it reminds me of a horse that has a lot of power, but it's bridled, and so the power is under control. You know? Some, meekness is like that, that thing that I think Washington, D.C. needs. Right? <laughs> power under control. We need leaders who have power, but they, they don't love it. You know what I mean? They, they, they want to use their power or, or power or position of influence. Right, not to draw attention to themselves, but to really help people. Now, if God gives you any sort of sphere of influence, He does it not to make much of you, but so that you will use it to help people and advance the gospel. That's the way it works, right? Um, meekness it was required to delegate because we can leaders can develop just a love for the spotlight. Uh, a desire to just want to make a name for themselves. There's a false-centered pride there thinking, uh, I've got to do everything because, because I'll do it better than anyone else. You know, it's just, or they just want to make a name for themselves. Um, Third John 9 talks about diatrophies, want, who love to be first. You know, <laughs> that's a, uh, just a very uh, real example there in, in church, right? An elder that just loved to be first. So if, if we're not careful, if we, if we think about this too, if we refuse, if a leader refuses to delegate, that's going to demonstrate 
an attitude of unbelief too. An attitude of unbelief of not trusting God to provide the gifted people needed. Right? And the, uh, so, just real quick, two areas of, of ministry here. I want to talk about if a local church like ours is going to be healthy and effective and glorify Christ. And the first area is shared leadership. Shared leadership. You know, whenever you, whenever you see leadership appointed in the New Testament, be it Jesus and his apostles, or it be it, you know, Paul and Barnabas, they're out planting and organizing churches. They always appoint a plurality of leadership. Okay? Power's never isolated to one individual. Uh, the leadership of the Jerusalem church very clearly stated it had apostles and then elders and then deacons. And while there are no apostles today, that doesn't mean that there aren't elders and deacons. Deacons um, tend to, this is like uh, just one of the offices in the church, deacons tend to focus more on practical areas of service, right? diakonos, it means servant. But um, elders are more apt to teach, they're gifted in teaching, whereas the deacons may, might not be. And so uh, in, in, the, in the nascent church of uh, days of the church, right, the, the birth of the church in Acts, you remember this? The apostles were being distracted from prayer and, and teaching to serve tables. And so they appointed spirit-filled deacons. And I think they chose seven men to um, serve tables. Of course, we know there was nothing wrong with the apostles serving tables, right? Not at all. But they understood that God had gifted them in a certain way and to be distracted by other things, good as they were, was not prioritizing the essential gifts that God had given them as apostles. Elders um, are also called shepherds or pastors. They're called overseers. Those are all interchangeable terms. These are the leaders of your local church, elders, Shepherds, overseers, all the same thing. But they shepherd the local church. They've got to meet qualifications of integrity, just like Jethro mentioned. Um, they are considered under-shepherds of the chief shepherd, Jesus. And uh, if a church is going to be sound, if it's going to be a healthy church community made up of sound individuals, it has to have sound leaders that are teaching sound doctrine, sound teaching, right? That's, how, that's, that's fundamental. A church needs healthy, shared leadership, and shared leadership is healthy, <laughs> okay? Uh, here, let me give you some reasons why we need a plurality of elders and why it's wise, because it protects the elders from too much praise and blame, right? Going to one man. Um, it affords built-in accountability for elders and their walks with Christ, Every elder, every pastor needs accountability. Number three, a plurality of elders is wise because it helps eliminate blind spots in doctrine and in ministry. You have more people, more eyes, more counselors. Um, number four, it enables the elders to feed on each other's passion and courage. And number five, it enables the various leadership gifts and styles of different men to be fully used for the health of the body. Right? So... Different elders, slightly different gifts, right? Different areas of, 
that stand out to them, that they're going to teach on, that sort of thing. And you think about it, why, why else is this important? Because you got one man with all the power, what's he tend to do with it? Abuse it, right? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Cults tend to organize themselves around one personality, usually a charismatic personality, that's someone that's really good at speaking, something like that. One of the grossest travesties in all of church history is the isolation of power, trying to... Um, it was, it's called the development of the monopiscopate, right? It's this idea that one man should lead the church, right? Or even a local church, or that one man should lead all the churches. You know who I'm talking about now, right? right? He carries a big stick and a big hat. Um, one of the most corrupt things that's ever happened in all of church history. Think about, think about this, the idea of one local church in Italy, rising up and saying that it's superior to all the other churches in Turkey, in Israel, in Africa, and around the world. Can you imagine one local church rising up, telling all the other local churches what to do? And then isolating that in one man and calling him infallible. Calling a sinful man infallible. That sort of concept is foreign to Scripture. And that's why I'm getting into the weeds a little bit here this morning with the plurality of elders. Anything different, any sort of isolation of power, foreign to Scripture. Local churches, like our local church, stands before Jesus as a local church. He's our authority, and we're going to be judged based on our faithfulness to him and to his word. That's why we do what we do. Rarely does Paul address local church leaders specifically. You ever thought about that? When Paul writes to the Philippians, he writes to the Philippians in that church, like the local church there. He's not addressing the elders. He's not addressing some clergy. He's addressing the church because the church as a whole is responsible for ministry, right? Shared, we have shared leadership. We also have shared ministry, shared ministry by all the saints. Okay, that's an, uh, uh, something to point out here. Elders are equippers. Our job, as the job of elders is to equip God's people to do the work of ministry. Okay, and if you're in Christ, if you've believed in Christ, get this, you're a saint. Isn't that amazing? You're a saint. You've been set apart by God with a ministry. God has a ministry for you in mind. You have a purpose. That's a good thing, isn't it? You have a good work. He has a good work for you to walk in. And uh, Ephesians 4.11 says, that's why he gives elders, right, uh, pastors and teachers. It's for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ so that, we, so that we're united, we become a mature man, the stature of which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And, and that's what God's after. I, I've got, I got a bunch of verses in your notes that you can read, but suffice it to say that the church is like a, a human body. Okay, Jesus Christ is the head. He's the one in ultimate authority. The body 
then, like beyond Christ, it's made up of individual believers. So the body has many parts, right? Some of us are a hand, some of us are an eye, some of us are a kneecap, <laughs> some of us are a foot, whatever. You know, many parts, but they're all dependent upon one another. They're different, but they're dependent upon one another. And that's the way the local church works. When the local church is healthy, when the local church is mature, all parts are operating in their designed areas, right? So uh, when the body is unhealthy, it might be because one guy is trying to do all the work of the other members, right? The hand's trying to do the work of the foot. So he's walking on his hands, right? But it's not as, uh, not as efficient, right? Obviously, but poor illustration, I know. But healthy churches seek to have in every member ministry where people, get this, get this, okay? This could be our mission statement. Healthy churches want in every member ministry where people are coming to Christ, being lovingly nurtured to maturity, and thus equipped for their ministry and their life mission, which will result in the further building up of the body in love to the glory of God. It's a good mission statement, I think. But speaking of a healthy body, right right out of high school, I went to school to be a diesel technician. I thought it would help out on the farm or something. But uh, one of the first things my professor said was that uh, when I got there, he said, diesel technicians... Uh, retire with better backs than your average auto technician. And he said that's because uh, diesel technicians, they typically work on tractors and trucks, right? Heavy equipment. And they know that they can't lift some of those parts without assistance, right? You just can't lift that tranny on that truck or that, you know, that that engine block, whatever it is. But he said that a lot of your, uh, you know, your... Your smaller auto mechanic stuff, regular, regular day driver type stuff. He said that the parts are just light enough that a man can lift them on his own to his own detriment, right? And so I thought that was a fitting illustration when you think about the church, right? Trying to do everything on your own, leaders, not a good thing. But uh, as, you, as you look into your heart, you look into your life right now, maybe... And maybe surveying the next few months of your life and what that looks like. Uh, ask yourself this question, these questions. What am I doing with my time? What do I need to prioritize? Where do I need to prioritize? prioritize and, and what am I doing alone that maybe I just don't need to or God just doesn't want me to? So, maybe uh, reprioritize a bit. Uh, think about what's essential to your calling, and then uh, think about what's additional. The essential involves your calling. It's those seeking the kingdom of God first things. The additional is stuff that we like to do, maybe we want to do more of, but we need to let go of, at least temporarily. So think about that, and uh, that's important, guys. I know it's hard to let go of some things sometimes, it's hard to say no to people, but... Here's the thing, by getting healthy yourself, you're, 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 you're making for a healthier church community. So think about that. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful uh, just for your, your good word to us this morning as usual. Um, your word is amazing. It's, it's fantastic. We love it. 
Um, trust that it's done a work in our hearts this morning for sure. And we pray that as your church, Lord, your people, your community, that uh, you just help us to walk in wisdom, understanding what is essential to our calling. Lord, we know that the Bible-believing, the gospel-preaching church is the most essential thing that this culture needs today. I mean, we should be the ones showing this culture what it looks like to live in unity and harmony and community, even with all of our differences. And so we pray that you'd continue to develop, develop us into uh, people of faith, a community of faith, and into a healthier uh, church body at the same time. And it's uh, in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.